You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hey there, listeners. Carlton here from Life and Ruins Podcast. Just to let you guys know, we have a lot of subjects that we talk about on this episode that you're probably not familiar with. So to make things easier, we've added resources on our Instagram account, as well as our website for you to follow along. So we have the picture that uh, Bernie Taylor talks about, as well as a bunch of different resources, his, like his website before Ryan, and as well as his books, as well as other resources that you can use to follow along with the episode in your free time. So please, 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 please be a scientific citizen and do your research just so you can have a more critical idea of what you're listening to and how to interpret it for yourselves. Don't just listen to me, David and Connor. Don't just listen to Mr. Taylor, but listen to both perspectives and do your own research. Well, thank you guys. And I hope you enjoy the episode. Later. Welcome to episode 14 of a Life in Ruins podcast. I'm your host, Carlton Gover, and I'm joined by my co-host, Connor Johnnan and David Howe. Tonight's guest is author Bernie Taylor. Bernie Taylor is an independent author who explores what he describes as the mythological connections and biological knowledge among prehistoric peoples. His books include Biological Time, published in 2004, and Before Orion, Finding the Face of the Hero, in 2017. Through his writing, Bernie suggests that the El Castillo Cave in Spain contains fundamental pieces in the human journey to self-realization, the the foundation of written language, and a record of biological knowledge that irrevocably impacted some of the artistic styles, religious practices, and stories that are still with, with us. Bernie found David through David's public outreach, and the two began to talk about their mutual interest in dogs. Bernie believes there are images of domestic dogs in El Castillo Cave. After some discussion, Bernie asked to continue this conversation on the podcast, and we are continuing that discussion today. Thank you for joining us, Bernie. How are you doing this evening? Well, I'm doing great. Thank you guys for having this show. We're going to have a good time tonight, explore some different ideas. Yeah, absolutely. So can you um, start by giving, uh, we gave a kind of an introduction to who you are. Can you give us a background to Absolutely. Who you are? Sure. So I come, so I live in Oregon, Portland, Oregon, out metro area. Been out here for more than 20, maybe 25 years, originally from the East Coast. I have a, what you want to know is I have a social sciences background, okay, which makes me, I would say, moderately qualified to look at Paleolithic cave art. I believe that the most qualified people to do this are from the humanities. Interesting, right? So if you walk into a Paleolithic cave, and it's, you know, it's, you know, if you walk in, it's uncovered and you can see with the, with the blind, with the naked eye, you're looking at it from perspective as an artist, which is the humanities, perhaps as a, so Picasso walked into the caves and he's has most quotes in you in world history about the cave art. You could walk in, walk in as Joseph Campbell did, who came out and said, these are myths because there's an organization of the characters. Some people have walked in and said, we see astronomical patterns. Archaeology is very good at dating cave art. I mean, and, and exploring, let's say, the depths and the artifacts to tell us the um, the history of the timeline. But the the other areas, um, the humanities, are what's most strongest because the humanities. I would also include social sciences, um, social sciences in terms of psychology. Sure, they bring out what did, what did people think about. Um, what do they? What do people look at the cave walls and recognize that we see today? What do they feel about that we feel today? So these are all I would describe as non-scientific, hard science studies. 
These are the next step forwards. So how did I get into this? About 13 years ago, I wrote Biological Time, which was about chronobiology, how do plants and animals time themselves? And I worked in conjunction with Oregon Fish and Wildlife. We're looking at the, the concept of salmon. Salmon in the Pacific Northwest run earlier, later from one year to the next, in about a one-month window. But what's unique about them is that they all run earlier or late together. So they, they either follow one smart salmon or the some other mechanism. And up and down the entire um, Oregon-Washington coast, they actually run earlier or late the same together. So we explored that concept, did field research, um, went out and collected data, all that sort of stuff. And we came up with a methodology that you could predict the salmon timing within a day or two, whereas previously you couldn't predict it at all, okay, within a month or so. And I gave presentations to academic conferences, universities, fish and wildlife agencies, the tribes. That was really important. Went to the Columbia Basin tribes, spoke before all the tribal councils. I had Native Americans crying. And they, someone said to me, that if this mechanism of the timing of the salmon, which also applies to deer, elk, and other animals, is apparent today, perhaps it was in our distant past. And someone, that same person said, you should go look at the images in the Paleolithic Caves of France. And so I looked at images from Atlas Co. 17,000 years ago, and lo and behold, the timing of the animals was exactly the same as the Native American calendars and biologically how the, the, these animals tie themselves. Well, chronobiology, biology clocks. Hey, can you start? Can what, you start there? Yeah. Native American calendars. Yeah, and how can you yeah. tell that in the archaeological record and on these these cave paintings? Good question. So there's a, there's um in the in the Lascaux cave there's a, a huge red deer. Some people say it's a megaloceros. Could be either one. It's, um, under the under the megaloceros red deer, there's a box, and there's thirteen dots leading to the box. In Native American traditions, they hunted around the full moon. They hunted around the full moon because the animals group together when there's more light. It has nothing to do with the, you know, the gravitationals and you know, the tides or anything like that. It's entirely due to the, the animals are up and about at night because the lights are on. The natural lights are on. So the animals group together. They also, they also rut together around the full moon because it brings the animals together. And that's in Native American calendars for deer and elk across, across our country. Now, the key thing is that it's always around the full moon because that's what they draw together. Whereas around the new moon, the dark nights, they're, they're spaced out. Um, and so the, how people around the world count is they start the lunar count within the cycle. So they start with that first crescent moon. And they count from 13 to the full moon. It's called the ecclesiastical full moon. Um, and you're, it, it's it just how everybody counts the moon. It's the easiest way to do it. And well, this this pattern of 13 is not just under that megaloceros red deer, but it's under other large animals, um, ibex, it's other deer um, in the Lusco cave, but it's also depicted in paleo, um, how should I say, Native American cave art or wall art in the Pacific Northwest and in their own calendars. So we have a biological phenomenon, or actually biological activity, that is the same timing mechanism as these red deer. And what's unique about this red deer is it's blowing kind of like a circular pattern from its mouth, and its neck is up and it has a full rack, so it's full antlers. So it's a rutting scene where he's this red deer is bugling in the morning to call in the cows. So we can not, not just to time it as a um, just a uh, any month of the year, a lunation of the year, but it's an actual biological activity within a season of the year. And it's exactly how Native Americans timed 
their hunts as well as the, the running of the deer. These these caves are peri- periodically reoccupied by multiple people through hundreds, you know, up to hundreds of thousands of years. How do you take that into account? Thousands of years. Thousands, thousands of years. Yeah. 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 10 to 20,000 yeah. years. How do you take that into account that these things are first connected? And second, how they're not a product of multiple times being there? Well, actually, they are. There are. Well, there's multiple caves. And that, what you're asking now is a. Uh, bio, you're asking an archaeology question. So how the archaeologists determine the timing, they, they actually can't time when people are in the caves. They can time when the images were made. It's a different concept. So you, the but, way they time someone's in the cave, you look at um, layers of soil. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. But the images right. are t- timed differently. And so, right. what, what, what is, so the most common, the most common method is, let's call it the state of the art method for dating cave art now is that most of these panels are on limestone, are limestone walls. And when the limestone, limestone percolates out, it becomes calcium carbonate. When the calcium carbonate goes on top of a cave image, you can say is it at least as old as that excretion of the calcium carbonate, which is datable using uranium uh, method. So the, it could be a day older or it could be, 10,000 years older. And you researched right. last week, it came out in is the science or nature about the Indonesian cave art at being about 43 years ago, years ago. As nature. Nature, yeah. And that was time with the same method. So it was at least 43,000 years ago. Now, what the, the author of that study knew is that there's cave art in in um, Spain at the, you know, El Castillo Mountain that was dated to 40,000 years ago at a minimum age, that could be a day older than the one in Indonesia. So this old, having found this concept of the oldest cave art is really a minimum dating. And so that's, right. a, that's so that's, a, and so archeologists, what they try to do is have multiple, multiple data points on a wall. And if, if they're within, you know, if they're fairly close to each other, they'll say that we're, you know, we're, this is pretty good to be about 40,000 years ago. So that's an archaeology question. And that that technique came out about six years ago, seven years ago. And what it did, what they did, the archaeologists did in Europe is they went around and they kind of tested everybody's ideas of what people thought the ages were. And there were winners and losers in this one. Okay, (laughs) Right. And so the the so-called losers who didn't have as old as people thought it was, so the archaeologists thought it was. They haven't changed their papers yet or let, you know, on Wikipedia and so on. But it's a uh, it's a game of who's the oldest. But the oldest is really a it's a speculative. It's very it's good data, but it's it's a speculative data point. Right. And I'd like just to like real quick add a couple things. Sure. Well, uh, other dating techniques include dating um, charcoal. Yes. In these caves, which yes. are evidence of human behavior. That's a big one because the uranium method, the standard deviations are, are, are larger because the half-life of uranium um, is much broader Correct. than of carbon. And one thing that I find interesting, so like Lascaux Caves, 12,000 years old in France, and you're using historic hunting methodologies of American Indian tribes in the United States yes. to help inform what's going on. And and just, you know, not all the tribes that are found in their historic ranges are traditionally like prehistorically from these ranges. Correct. Well, none of the Native, Native, of that. Native Americans would be from the Lascaux region because Native Americans were exactly they're not even from France. Yeah. Twenty four thousand exactly. years ago. Yeah. So the Lascaux was seventeen thousand yeah. years ago. So the Na- Native Americans didn't change. People in Siberia didn't change. 
Um, they actually, Native Americans had some, may have had changes. People in Siberia would, may have had changes, as the people in Paleolithic, uh, the Macnellan people in Spain and France, but the animals didn't change. So our observation of the animals no. doesn't change. Um, and so the, the, the red deer and the megaloceros rutted at the same, in their same own biological timing through that whole, that whole period. And until, well, right, as most animals do, that so, it's usually yeah. coincided with spring and, and yeah. fall. Um, and this is, I, f- I find this, I find it, I honestly find it fascinating because it really it's not much of a question of the data. It's really a question of how we interpret. Correct. To interpret these. And this is what you bring up with the humanities, that the humanities might be able to, to help understand these things. And that's where it gets, and, and unfortunately, in, in terms of academia, we get, we we hold ourselves and and put our feet down in these certain in these certain camps, but when it comes to things like art and cave art, none of us were around then. Correct. No one that we know was around then. So we're trying to use our our modern day interpretations to help inform us of prehistoric mental spaces and how they thought. And that's and that's that's the interesting part of of this whole of this whole dynamic because fundamentally everyone agrees on the dates. They agree relatively, you know, what these things represent, because these aren't, you know, canon images, these are paintings. Mm-hmm. And and that's, so fundamentally, like, that's why, we, you know, we're excited to have you on the show. It's, it's that you offer these very interesting perspectives um, that are based in a different paradigm than what we uh, usually associate ourselves with or, or are familiar to. So, so that's where I started. Okay. That was biological time. And I put it to, I gave lots of, you know, did the conference route and you know, taught classes and so on, actually guest lecture classes. Right. Um, and then I um, put it down for 10 years and I came back and I was going to do kind of an upgrade, just write a paper about what I had noticed since other cave art had been dated to older, all the time. And I started looking at the El Castillo cave and the so-called gallery of discs, which had been put at about 34,000 years ago with this new uranium series dating. And I started counting the red discs in the same way as I did at Lascaux and other caves in, in Europe. And I, you know, I just sat back in the chair once. And I started looking, oh, my God, that looks like an elephant. And, you know, so the, the ear and the trunks up. For the, for the audience listening, I, w- I would Google right now, uh, if you can, um, El Castillo Cave in Spain, uh, so you can see the images that uh, we're talking about. Exactly. Yeah, it, it's a yeah. El, El, gallery of discs, El Castillo, El Castillo Cave. And uh, above the elephant, what appeared to be an elephant, um, and I actually thought I was kind of making this up. It looked like a lion. And I said, oh, okay, wait a second. Now, this lion didn't have, it didn't have, apparently didn't have, it had a mane, whereas the other images of lions in Europe, both Europe had, um, had, they were bald of sorts. They didn't have manes. And uh, then there's some other unusual characters. So I reached out to someone from my distant past. I'm 55 now. My mid-20s, I lived in Beijing, China. Um, and I, through a mutual friend back then, I met George Schaller. And George Schaller is the, considered the world's foremost field, field wildlife biologist. And he's the mentor of Jane Goodall and everybody else. So I went, so I contacted George completely out of the blues, mid mix 80, mid eighties now. And I said, George, I'm looking at these images. This is the time period. Um, this would appears to me, is this an elephant? And is this a um, lion? And he kind of looked it over and he said, well, it is an, it could be an elephant. He said, well, it could also be a woolly mammoth. What is a, he says, I don't, you know, what is, what are woolly mammoths, both juveniles and adults look like. And so um, we went back and forth. And then as we're doing that, other animals start popping out. 
are these animals popping out in the sense that they've been painted on, or is this natural formations in the rock art? Because I'm going to be honest, that that's what I see. Yeah. So if you so if you look at the yeah yeah that's so if if you look the panel, it's a, you see two thirds of it is white limestone with red and black on top. Okay. The, sure. the natural state of that panel should be all the dark matter that you see in the top third. Okay, so what they did was they took off Why? the let's call it the brown matter, um, and then they they literally I don't want to say etched out, but they they and I don't want to say chisel either because they didn't, they didn't have chisels, right? But they they scraped out layers of it. So you're looking in the gallery disc is the, it's the Pedro Suarez image that you can see. Sure, it, it's actually. It should be like multi-dimensional, and a lot of those lines that you see are actually multiple layers. Um, so everything below the brown is entirely f- fabricated. Okay, so by either oh, I see, I see what you're talking about. They did this at Chauvet Cave with the panels. They scrape off the exactly. top limestone. And the Chauvet Cave, it's up. the panel of dots, the red dots. Yeah, it's okay. the same thing exactly. And uh, by the way, the Chauvet—I didn't put the, the Chauvet cape, the panel of dots in the book, but it has a similar themes to what you're looking at on this. Now you're talking about El Castillo. We're, no? So right now, yeah. So we're back to El Castillo Gallery of Desks. Okay, and so every so every everything white should not be white. It was scraped off to become the the limestone that you see. It's not its natural. Are state. there other studies that? So you you've said. Earlier, one of our questions was, have you been to this cave yourself? I have not been. Have you? I've seen the images in and around. I've seen all the images from the cave, and I've seen the ones on both sides of this. So as soon as you leave that white area, you're in brown. So the nat- the natural state is the brownish material. Sure. Yeah. And have did you get this this notion that the these images were carved out of the, the natural rock uh, from a, a paper, or was this your, your like summation? Yeah, so actually, I start. Uh, yeah, I, I didn't. I had no knowledge prior to seeing the elephant that there was anything but red discs on that wall. I abs- at that time I had no knowledge. Okay, I've since come to find other documentation from the past that people had seen, had been here, they'd seen the images, but I, I had no knowledge of it. So here's a, so, so I contacted George. Okay. So this so no published studies. There were no published. Yet. Well, there was one in 18, 1600 or so. Um, and, uh, but the, okay. so I had no, I had no knowledge. So contacting George Schaller sure. is like asking Tiger Woods, how's my stroke? And Tiger could say to you, you know, you got some potential or you maybe should try, you know, miniature golf. Um, and so I took a huge risk going to George and George, you know, he scratched his head and says, so kind of looks like an elephant. Well, after probably 30 animals later um, and hundreds of emails going back and forth, um, we resolved that it wasn't elephants, but we actually couldn't decide what it was either a European elephant because there were yellow elephants at that time in Europe or an African elephant. We never we couldn't decide that. Um, but we found other animals that were from Europe and other and, and Africa and marine animals. And uh, at that time. My my and I, I'll you know reveal this like my understanding of uh, Pleistocene megafauna in Europe, or you know their demographics is not as good as it is for North America. But were there still mammoths running around that area during that time? Yeah, there, there were mammoths. Now the difference now George and I we went back and forth in this, um, and he he he's, I show him a picture of a mammoth. The mammoths had like that humped head, and the, and there's actually there's actually four images of elephants on that panel, and they all have 
flatheads like an African elephant. The the Pacific elephant or Asian elephant, I should say, has a humped head, something like a woolly mammoth. So then George asked me, well, I don't know what a, maybe it could be a juvenile woolly mammoth. Um, and so we found the image of the baby Luba out of Siberia. And lo and behold, you know, juvenile woolly mammoths have a humped head, just like an adult one. And so we, we, we still weren't completely, he wasn't completely decided. Um, and it wasn't until later that we found, I mean, many more animals. We're going to stop you there. We're going to end at this first session and you can take, we can continue on in the second, sure. just as a time management thing. So yeah, this has been um, episode 14 of Life in Ruins with Bernie Taylor. We'll catch you on the far side. And we're back to segment two with Bernie Taylor of episode 14 of a Life in Ruins podcast. All right. So uh, yeah, where do we want to kick back off guys? Red Discs. All right, let's talk about red discs. And these are the red discs in El Castillo Cave, or are we also going to be talking about another cave as well? We can actually talk about, well, well primarily the uh, El Castillo Cave, we're going to talk about red in general, because that's that's the essence okay. Of, okay. of it all. Now, would you agree that the, the red discs of, of El Castillo are date to about 40,000 based on the, the U-series dating? So the U-series is running at 34,000 for the gallery of discs and for, around 40,000 for the uh, the panel of hands, which is a okay, different okay. chamber. And this and this you made a YouTube video about the about red in general on your YouTube disc, yeah. um, channel before Orion. Yeah. So it's about a minute long. So for our viewers or listeners, sorry, you guys should check out this uh, YouTube video so that way you guys get a more of a background of what we're talking about. It's only a minute long. So, OK, the color red. So, go, so earlier I said that I was looking at the cave image, um, Pedro Suarez image, that's widely available, you can find it. And I was counting the red discs, just like everybody else. How many were there? What do they, what do they mean? All that sort of stuff. Because that was the, when the when this, the recent, the dating, the Uranian series dating came out that pushed El Castillo back to 40,000 years ago. The big story was, what does the red disc mean? And so I was counting red discs, just like everybody else. And... I went back a little further into my studies in the past. I, I thought about red, red, and there was um, Nicholas Tinbergen won a Nobel Prize or shared a Nobel Prize for his study, his work in the, the study of instinct. And Tinbergen had a three spine stickleback tank, a tank with three spine sticklebacks near his, his window. And every day that, that a red delivery truck came by and stopped outside the windows, the sticklebacks went into a defensive posture and Tinbergen, um, theorize that since the sticklebacks and fish in general are um, brainstem dominated, they were, it was an instinctual reaction that not just fish should respond to, but we do as well. So when you drive down the highway, you, you know, you, no one stops for a blue sign or a green sign because it blends into our natural world. We stop for that right. red sign. It, it's, it's naturally alerting to us in the same way as a stickleback. If you drive your main strip, the main strip in your town, what do you see that's red? Stoplights, stop signs. Um, I see a lot of yellow. Yeah. Yellow, too. The other end of the spectrum. You see McDonald's. You see Burger King. You see Dairy Queen. So uh, Madison Avenue picked up on the red a long time ago, and they're using it to trigger our brains at the most basic level to say, look at me, stop, get a burger. You from Long Island, Bernie? I'm from originally Long, yes, Babylon area. Okay, I'm from Islip. Cool. I th you mentioned Madison Avenue. So I was like, oh, he's from New York too. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's so the 
It's at the most basic level. So the red disc, I believe part of it was a test. Can you see beyond the red disc? Can you see the, you know, the, the, the forest through the trees? And it wasn't, I was like everybody else, I was counting the red disc. And that's why I didn't see the elf, literally the elephant in the room. And so George and I, we went, we continued down finding all these animals. Um, and on one end of the panel, let's say to the viewer's left, there's a giraffe. And on the viewer's right, there's a horse. And these are both, on the viewer's right, there's also an Iberian lynx and some other European animals. Those are animals that were distinctly from two, the two different continents, um, Africa and, and Europe. And in between those, we found marine animals. There's a seal, there's... Um, Mm, is a dolphin there's a, a whale and this is this crab. is this is from your identification right just want to make sure that we're yes yeah, from our identification okay, yeah. okay and they're all the, and people go to my webpage before ryan.com you can you know see people could see for themselves and i also i um, also want to like backtrack a little bit and then say that these are um these red discs they're originally made out of ochre is that is that correct yeah they're, they're made of red ochre yes okay okay just a bit just so our, yeah. our, our viewers so, oh, understand yeah, if you yeah next time you guys are flipping through a pale the cave art book and you see red discs take a deeper look because it's the test okay. I'm, trying to, the, I'm trying to look um well, so paleolithic so we're talking about like european paleolithic so, so like 12, our discussion today past forty thousand. Yeah, so, yeah so okay and is that are we confining that to like because most of this talk so far has been is european Europe. rock art so we're looking at the european paleolithic Twelve thousand and beyond. Okay, so and then also that just to, for the listeners, like ochre is is a naturally recurring. It's not a. It's is it a mineral? It basically, it's, it's like degraded iron. Yeah, yeah. it's hematite yeah. degraded, and it's easy to make paint out of. And you see um, ochre used globally. Yes. Um, In a spiritual you context, can, you can find it. Yes, that that too. Yeah, that is also yeah. And that's amazing. So why around the world? It's, I don't believe it's just a brain cell dominated reaction why we were attracted to the rare ochre. I believe that at a deeper point in time, we used it spiritually. Now, what? and I'm not a spiritual person, but we come from a spiritual source. Um, and that's what, makes, that's what makes this interesting, is that we're can now you, going back so far Sorry. deep in time. What do you, what do you mean I'm by I'm not like, a spiritual person. What, what do you mean by like we come, uh, we come, we from, come a from a spiritual source? Yeah, what do you mean by that? Sorry. So we come from, so people people um, prior to six five six thousand years ago were um, animistic um, people that they sure. they believed that the mountains were gods they believed that the wind had a voice they believed that they could talk to animals and the animals would talk to them so an, an animist would be very similar to Native Americans when we arrived. Okay. Um, and so if you look at Native American, Native American literature or folklore or myth, you'll find that people interacted the, with the animals. They spoke with the animals, listened to the animals. And before people arrived, the animals talked with each other. And so that's the spiritual source that we all come from. And we still carry it within us. You know, have any of you guys ever said, you know, that someone is as smart as an owl? Uh, well, and Pawnee believes owls are the devil, so we don't use that in my household. <laughs> okay. But I, I get, I get what you're saying. And, and like, also like, it's, it's important to realize that like, especially with American Indian beliefs, there's over 562 tribes and sure. more state tribes and not all of, you know, it's easy to talk about these things homogeneously. Correct. Um, and, and there's still differences in, in, in which they conduct their own spiritual ceremonies. And like the comment that I had is like when, people still, you know, it's not necessarily talking. And, and this is coming from my point of view, the way that I, I've been told, it's not necessarily talking, but that animals communicate, not necessarily in a, in a voice context, but their behaviors communicate 
um, events that are going on in time and space. So like when, like you said, like when an elk is rutting or, or, you know, when the bears start to get fatter, you know, fall's coming. So they're in that kind of context, how animals are, are communicating and how people can, um, understanding animal behavior can use, can use those interpretations to help inform them of environmental conditions. That, that is exactly true. And that's what I, that is uh, my observation with Native American specific Northwest. So it's communi- so communicating with maybe listening to or watching the behavior of the animal. Um, and there's typically a myth associated with that that might say explain how it all came to be if the myth still exists. But yeah, that's that's really cool. Thank you for um, for for putting that in there. So if, so we go back this far in time, 36,000 years ago, and we have and if we have African animals, we're not just talking about Europe, we're talking about at least Western North Africa. And we're, we're finding at this point, let's say a common spiritual source, because people in, in Indonesia could have come out of, they definitely went through North Africa, and they could have intersected with people that were in uh, Western North Africa. And so what we're finding is, for the first time, is these um, let's call it spiritual characters that connect that possibly connect to who we are today. Did any of you guys study um, Joseph Campbell when you're in high school or college? All right, the hero. Uh, I had a I had yeah. a two point three three repeating GPA in high school. I didn't do a goddamn thing. <laughs> okay, so. <laughs> so Joseph Campbell was the easy one. Okay, and what Joseph Campbell said is that there is a there's a common myth because he says people, Joseph Campbell said people all around the world fundamentally tell the same story of a hero that goes on his journey. And if you if you somehow kidnap somebody from China who had never knew nothing about Western literature and brought and told them the story of Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz, the Chinese person would say, you know, that sounds a lot like Journey to the West. Because there's common elements in these stories, and that's what Joseph Campbell recognized. And he said, Joseph Campbell said, two things could have happened. One is that this story is so deep in time that we all intersect with it, or that there it, it was dispersed, sort of a hyper-dispersion um, more recently in time in the, let's say, five, 6,000 years ago. Okay, That's what Joseph Campbell said. And that is one hypothesis. Um, and there's another hypothesis came out of um, Swiss psychoanalyst Carl Jung. And Jung said is that we have common archetypes. So if you, in an image, if you see a woman in distress, you recognize she's in distress and you feel for her. Um, if you see a you know a teacher, a man speaking to the ear of a young boy, as we find in this, pal- this gallery of this, this image, you, rec- you associate the teacher and the apprentice. So these the, these the old and the right, right. So and we, these are archetypal characters. So you're saying that they, you saw this in um, not El Castillo. It's in a different place specifically. Sorry, I just need to contextualize. Yeah, actually. So on the gallery of discs, we have the teacher and the apprentice, which is um, it's it's down to if it, from the viewer's side, it'd be down to the the viewer's right. Yeah, the bottom and right in El Castillo. Bottom right, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. the most common image that I use in my um, my videos, and my in presentations. Yeah, it jumps out. And that, by the way, I find that same that same motif in other caves. What caves are those? The Gorms Cave, the Gorm Etching has one, as well as the Chauvet Panel of Dots. And yeah, okay. it's at the top. <laughs> it's at so, the top. But yeah, it's not in the book because I, I didn't get permission to use that image for the book. Sure. Um, when you meet with other archaeologists and other, I guess, humanities um, researchers, what, what is the, their general reception of this art? Well, the, they're amazed and they're not amazed that it's there, but they're amazed that we can go, that it pushes back mythology. 
So prior to my work, the oldest myth of, of time was the Epic of Gilgamesh, 4,500 years ago, dug up in the, in the sands of Iraq. And Gilgamesh had all the same fundamental problems that that's, we That's had. written myth, you know, right? He, he was an awful that's written person. Myth. Okay, that's okay. written exactly okay, written myth. Sure. Yeah. So, in due respect to the Pawnee, okay. I, so that's that is written myth. So that's that's only what we can actually date versus since time immemorial. Okay. Um, I believe that the Native American myths are much older than the Epic of Gilgamesh. Okay. Um, so yeah. the the um, so good point. The so Gilgamesh people had looked at Gilgamesh and said, well, that's that early story. And psychologically, we haven't changed since then. So now they they can they can see the images and they. It pushes back the concept of the story of the hero, the, the, you know, the hero's journey, the, the teacher and the apprentice, and these other characters. It says that we had this same story going back at least thirty-four thousand years ago. Therefore, the psychology of man hasn't changed very much, which makes sense. So, you know, and this, and this is this is a big thumbs up for Native Americans. Is that so? The, the common, um, let's say, anthropological DNA point where you're now is people in Berengia about 24,000 years ago, and somewhere, you know, 15 to 16,000 years ago, they started migrating down to the lower North America. Okay. Something sure. like that. Okay. And so if they, people were in Berengia 24,000 years ago, well, that is of a earlier date than, let's say, let's go at 17,000 years ago. So if Native Americans can have that same, fundamentally the same structure of the myth is what Joseph Campbell said, then it dates back so far in time before, um, before Lisco. Therefore, everybody should have the same, these fundamental myth structure. And this proves out Joseph Campbell pushing it back, to, let's say, 20, beyond the 22,000 years ago of Beringia to 34,000 years ago. And that, so the question is then asked, this is really humanity's question and, and psychology. Why do we have the common myth? Is the myth in us? And when the archetypal characters um, are you know, found, is the myth evoked? Or what Joseph Campbell said, we carry down the same myth story from early in time. So what do the Pawnee say? That's the question. Where's the myth come from? Is the myth within us or was the myth passed down? I think it's passed down. Yeah, I mean, that, it's it's interesting because I mean, like also like the the Pawnee populations, the Native American populations that we know of today really started forming around 1500 at the end of the medieval global warming period. So before that, we're not quite sure how their populations were structured, but also like, you know, it's not unheard of for humans to to to. To develop technologies and stories independently from one another, we see that with like the bow and arrow. It's developed. They didn't, you know, American Indians did not come across Beringia with it. They, they're the bow and arrow in Europe and North America. They're dependent. They're developed independently from one another. So it's not like necessarily unheard of that there's these fundamental evolutions in terms of human technology and technology itself just being an expression of human psychology or, or human yeah. mental templates. Um, it, it's like still, all, it's fascinating and it's, and it's, you know, that's, it just comes back to what we talked about in that first section. It's like, you know, these, these concepts, cause there's no, you know, there's no evidence in the sense of like, there's no material remains left behind. Correct. Right. Like it's not like arrowheads or the, or the paintings. It's like, that's, what's fun. That's, what's interesting about these topics. It's like, they're, they're abstract. And, you know, in archeology, span we've seen a shift towards looking at these more with the post-processual paradigm in our field where more abstract ideas are being investigated and um, the traditional uh, Binfordian techniques of archeology span are, are, are 
being labeled as processual. So yeah, it's like really, you know, we can all talk about these things, but it's also like, it's fascinating. It, it honestly is fascinating. So the, the earlier asked the question, what do people of humanities think when they see these images? And they say it's fascinating because they, we have an actual journey. We can see that we have a character that he starts in Iberian Peninsula. We have a, a, a water water area. We have this marine animals, and we have African animals. So he goes from it goes from Iberian Peninsula, the northern part of Spain, across the Strait of Gibraltar to Africa, and back again to retell the story. And, and so, in one video, you said you saw that there were giraffes in this in this cave art too. Yes, you can actually. You should be able to see the head of the giraffe without me outlining it for you. If you look to your left, um, the far left center, it looks like it looks like a deer, and it's the head's the head is on its side. I have multiple. I have images in my presentations which show the giraffe. So actually, there's two giraffes. Sure. There's a mother giraffe, and okay. then there's a juvenile which wraps its head around the mother, its head around the mother's neck, and the red disc at that part of the panel become the molted pattern of the of the. Um, mother giraffe. Is there any zoological evidence or, um, I guess, paleontological evidence of giraffes yeah. in, in, in Spain? Europe, not that time period now. So in the hundreds okay. of thousands of years ago, they were giraffes, but not, you know, At in tens time. of thousands of years from the point that this was made. Um, the, the dog question, we don't have much time left, sure. but um, which cave is it that you said you, you saw these images of domestic dogs? So the question is, that word domestic is big, okay? Um, sure. So this is what, um, there's, I'm going to point to two studies. One study was 2000, in uh, 2012 by a, a Chinese group, and they, they said that 32,000 years ago, they were indigenous dogs and they were wolves. Based on the DNA analysis, is Slavoline et al. I think um, it's a, it was a Chinese was, group, so it was a string of Chinese yeah. names. The 2012s, mm-hmm. and then 2015, the Skogland paper, which looked at the, the Tamar wolf out of Siberia. That was the wolf was about 34,000 years ago, and he said that roughly at least around 30,000 years ago, there were wolves and there were dogs. Okay, this was I believe. I believe that we 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 that we domesticated dogs, not wolves, because the Skolgan story DNA suggests that dogs and, and wolves, gray wolves come from a common canid, which was not a gray wolf. So we and don't know the, what it the is. The DNA that was, the DNA that was dated was, it was mitochondrial DNA. Correct. And mitochondrial DNA itself, like there's issues with it. Um, recently, there was a paper published that we talked about in one of our previous podcasts about the dogs on Instagram. Um, that was that same D- mitochondrial DNA used on um, horses in the Americas was used to try to prove that horses had always been into the Americas. So like mitochondrial DNA is absolutely a great resource. Mm. However, we all, we all should rep- you know, know that these are breadcrumbs and Correct. not the whole loaf. So it's, it's fascinating. And, and right before we get to back to the talk about dogs, I want to just suggest like uh, for you, Bernie, for uh, cross-cultural comparisons in myths i highly recommend um, it's called tolkien and pawnee land it's uh, argument about comparing tolkien stories of middle earth with pawnee mythology and then also you should look into the sami as a cultural comparison to what we see in spell swami spell, sw- sami. spell that yeah spell yes. that word sami i th- sami i think it's like s-a-m-i yes yeah, so, totally yes the, the sami the people in um northern europe yes 
Yes, and and they're indigenous populations that have continued hunting and gathering practices since the introduction. So definitely look into those guys. I think that it'd be more valuable to look at them than possibly, you know, other indigenous groups because they're the descendants of the indigenous groups that um, lived in in Europe. So just 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 something that I wanted to, to mention. But back to the dog. Okay, so the qu- the question is the question comes down to were do, do dogs and wolves separately exist, or did were dogs bred from wolves? So I think with the Scoglin paper, it, what it's saying is that there's a descendant population that like dogs are an offshoot of ancient wolf populations, and it's not necessarily to say that dogs in in the sense that we know them existed. It's just those wolves that were more predisposed to being familiar around humans and less aggressive. That line is what descended into dogs, and that's why they were domesticatable. Is that something you well, would well, agree my, with? My reading that- on the, so he didn't. I don't think he went into what made them domesticatable. And there's, I read your sure. paper, your two thousand twelve paper. About the different lines. Yeah, there's five. Yeah. You had five. Well, you, you had five different hypotheses. You outlined five different hypotheses how dogs came to be. Um, sure, and and a summary of others. A summary, yeah. yeah, and and they're all good. They're all good. But if we have five hypotheses about how dogs came to be, maybe they're all right. Well, actually, maybe one of them right or maybe two are right. But we're still we're still asking that question. And I think the Chinese study that came out in 2012 that said there was the um, there were indigenous dogs and there were wolves at the same time, that indigenous dogs then were were then domesticated versus the wolves being domesticated. It starts asking questions about could there have been dogs before? Could dogs have evolved? Um, could, could I should say, could an animal have evolved separately from a wolf that became a dog? I don't know if that paper exactly says that, but yeah. it, it again says that there are different lines of, there's still gray wolves that exist, just like there are British people that still exist. And as Americans, like we used to be British in, in a way, and yeah. domestic dogs are an offshoot of those wolves that have now descended down into if that makes sense. That um, makes sense, yeah. So, possibly, so what, what we have in the images is a, about, so let's say 34,000 years ago, we have canids with ears down and with canids with ears up. Um, and in the modern world, we look is at- this, this is from the panels that you're you're talking about. The panels, yeah. yeah. Um, and in, in our modern world, we look at dogs, wild dogs, I should say not wild dogs, but wolves have ears up, right? And there are sure. there are dogs that are domesticated with ears up and they're domesticated with ears down. And so did that 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 down ear domestic down ear dogs come as a result of us domesticating them, or did it come out a result of something that the dogs did naturally in the wild? And of course there's the there's the um the silver fox. I- the silver fox, sure. right? And uh, yeah. the, which, so what they were doing in in Russia or Siberia is they were tr- they were trying to breed out foxes that were more tame in the kennel, so then wreck the fur, right? Okay, um, and they and among a small segment of the population, they found that the puppies for th- for three months, some of them had ears down, and so they postulated that if the the ears down might have been a result of taking out the, let's say, the aggressiveness of the Sure, the what you're attack. describing is yeah. domestication syndrome. And when, and when an animal, this is what this study shows, is that when like things are selected for decreased aggression in their traits, their, their ears seem to flop down more due, due, uh, due to neural crest cells sure. that like don't 
put strength into the cartilage that make them flop down. It also makes their coat spotty and it makes their, like they bark and they have like larger puppy, like neotenous traits into their adulthood. So and that's, and that's for, what that study sorry. shows. So, but it was only for three months. That's really important. There was only the puppies for three months. I just saw one of the researchers actually came to Boulder a month or two ago mm-hmm. and talked to us about this study. So it was like it was out of Moscow during the Soviet Union. Yeah. And it's at a as you as you mentioned, it's basically a fox breeding facility for fur. Mm-hmm. However, they got permission to control a subsegment um, of the fox population. I think they were able to keep max 700 that were specifically meant for this study. Um, and it took. I think like 40, 40 something years for most of the domestic traits to appear. Well, not um, domestic traits per se, but they were non-aggressive. You have to say really non-aggressive. Yeah. So first came the non-aggressive towards humans yeah. as they selectively Neotenous chose the, the foxes. Yeah. 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 So they chose, so they selected, they basically got rid of the foxes that were aggressive towards humans. Mm. And I think one of the more fascinating pieces of that study was they were, they were concerned if, the, if the foxes, if the mother's behavior towards humans was relayed onto the puppies, so what they did, and this is, you know, you can only do this in Russia, sure. was they, you know, <laughs> they, they opened up pregnant tame fox and a pregnant wild fox, and they split, they took three embryos from each and placed them in the opposite mother, zipped them back up, let them have their puppies, and even still, regardless of mother, what you know, regardless of which mother they had, they still had the traits of their mother, which I thought was absolutely fascinating. So, David, how many years and how many thousands of dollars do you need to test this hypothesis on wolves? The ears up and ears I would, down. I would love to do that. Um, how much? I guess. What's, what's crowdfunded? The money? Yeah. How uh, 40, yeah. 40 years in a gulag in Russia. <laughs> yeah, the entire economy of the Soviet Union. But, um, yeah, that'd be an interesting study to do. And what I, it's interesting, and you mentioned the thing about like the uh, after a couple of months, it, it changes. The fox experiment's a recent thing with selected controlled breeding. Mm-hmm. So when this happens over thousands of years, upwards of 30,000 to, you know, 25 to 15,000 years, is what, if you wanted to talk conservatively, um, that gives time for these traits to be inbred in persistently. And that's the dogs that we have today. So to say that there were floppy eared dogs back in the day, and painted in, into into cave art. Uh, I don't know how what the dates are in that the cave. Thirty four thousand, but thirty four thousand. Yeah, this is which is actually Arcus when Skolkin's range. That's in Skolkin's range. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and I wanted to clarify that. And those are those are images you drew, right? No, they're not. Actually, I didn't draw them. The, so the images exist on the wall. I recognize you. Yeah. And then I outline. And what I always do, and I'm very careful about this, is that I always give the original image to compare to. If you look at most probably the cave art books that predate, let's say, 30 years ago, you'll see a lot of drawings of dogs, or actually not dogs, drawings of, of Pelican cave images because that, that predate, you know, good color photography and so on, digital photography. And they'll show you what the archaeologists or the interpreter believe them to be. Um, in fact, I'd say 80% of the Pelican cave record is of people's interpretations, either um, drawings, and they don't show a digital image next to it for the for the viewer to compare. So I offer both. What about Lascaux? So Lascaux was, um, Rispoli did his book probably 25, probably 25 years ago, good digital photography. Good, and and the okay. Chauvet one by um, Jean-Claude, very good di- digital photography. But when you go to, actually, not, um, but you go to other caves, it's like a large 
inventory of the Paleolithic cave images, the decisions were made a very long time ago, and they were made by the Abbey, B-R-U-I-E-L, um, and Abbey meaning a Catholic priest. Um, and he, what he did was he, he actually went down the caves and he drew what he saw. And so many of the decisions that we make based on the Paleolithic record are an individual's interpretation with very old technology. Um, but yeah, sure. let's, let's go. Show, very good. These are all pictures. Yeah, there's all these pictures right now. All publicly available. So, 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 so you're all saying pictures, all publicly available. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Go, yeah. Before so, Ryan.com, so go to the webpage. No, Absolutely. no, I'm just, I'm just I'm asking. Not it. It's all there. So you're saying that our interpretations come from this one person, yeah. Yeah. but these things are available online for everyone to see nowadays. Mm. And I'm, I'm just confused by that. So, um, yeah, if you go to, yeah, if you go to Wikipedia and you start looking up the caves and you see drawings, that was made by most of those were made by the Abbey sixty but, years but, ago. But, the drawings, okay. yeah, yeah. We are definitely over time. <laughs> this has been Bernie. This has been great. Like, thank you for coming on on the podcast. Do you want? Do you have anything that you uh, need to plug for our listeners? Uh, what do you want them to go to? Oh, beforeRyan.com yeah, webpage. I use hashtag before, before Ryan for everything. I give a lot of presentations. Um, I mostly related to archaeoastronomy. Okay. And I also do some Picasso Hero's Journey type of stuff as well. Always welcome to um, Skype or video conference in. And, you know, it's a it's been an extraordinary experience. And I love the conversation. And if you guys um, ever want to get out on some non-archaeology podcasts to talk about <laughs> your stuff, I can hook you up. Oh, dude, I'm down. Yeah. I'm totally down. I, I like I like talking. Yeah. Well, uh, we'd like to ask our visitor, our uh, listeners every episode. Um, if you could live your life in ruins, well, I guess in your case, Bernie, if you could if you could live your life in the in the Paleolithic uh, rock art caves, would you do it again? No, <laughs> you know, I like Costco. I like the freezer. Um, <laughs> I do love Costco. It's my <laughs> most adult thing about me. <laughs> I like Netflix. You know, I'm, I'm good. Yeah. All right. Well, all right. Before Orion.com, is that where they can go? Before Orion.com. All right. Well, Bernie, thanks again for being on here. Good stuff. Welcome back to segment three of a Life in Ruins podcast. Uh, Bernie will not be joining us for this segment because we have some announcements. So just for, for our listeners, that was a great that was a great interview. Suggest if you listen to Dr. Anderson's episode that we uh, that came out, episode eleven. You know, he mentions read his stuff, read other people's stuff, and then make decisions on your own. Um, you know, use your brain. I thought, I think he has some interesting points. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I think we will certainly uh, leave links in our show notes to his pages just to, so it's easier for you guys to, as listeners, get in and see where, where he's coming from. Because by yeah. no means are we predicated on the stance that we're just not going to listen to people who we don't agree with. Um, we want our listeners to know other content that's out there, but it's your responsibility to look into it. So if you find what he says is fascinating, I certainly do. Read his work, read his arguments, and then also read the people that he doesn't agree with. And then make your own decision. Don't let people just tell you what to think. So that's your guys' responsibility. I'm wrong all the time. So like, don't listen to me ever. But I mean, <laughs> so. I cite stuff. Um, well, well, clearly, well, clearly not, David, because you have about what ten thousand followers on ethnosynology now. So people clearly <laughs> like what you're posting. Yeah, um, I actually did just uh, hit a milestone. It's actually the only New Year's resolution I've ever hit in my life, and this is like it was such a weird feeling. Uh, do you guys mind if I like dish real quick? 
Yeah. So just yeah. also for listeners, we're recording on December 16th. You guys are listening to this January. Um, so this David recently hit this. Um, yeah, dude, go into it. Yeah. So I don't really hit goals ever. Cause like, you know, that's lame half the time, but I was like, you know what? Like, I really want to do the science outreach thing. I want to make sure I'm doing this right. And I was like, if I just hit 10,000 followers by the end of the year, like I'll have done something that like I wanted to accomplish. And like, I did it like in December, <laughs> but I like, I didn't expect it to happen this soon. But anyway, it's like on Instagram, 10,000 is like when you get like a creator account and it's when like Facebook realizes like you're a money making potential you can swipe um, up, right? I haven't made any money yet, just so everyone knows. Yeah, you can swipe up in your stories. I do want to clarify, I have not made any money. I don't make anybody I'd lose money doing this pretty much. It's just I genuinely want to get the information out there. And I do try to cite it all. Um, if it's just an opinion, I usually, there's no citation near it. So just like keep that uh, in mind. But anyway, I just wanted to thank everyone that uh, listens to this podcast, first of all. And then also, by extent, people who follow me on Instagram, maybe that's how you found us. Uh, really appreciate it. You guys like wanting to know more things and interacting with me is like genuinely one of the best sources of happiness in my life, which kind of sucks. Cause like, <laughs> I don't want to base my happiness off Instagram, but it's the thought of like the education and people reaching out to me. Uh, I've explained evolution to people on, uh, through my Instagram that hadn't really thought about it in such a way before. And that, that really means a lot to me. Uh, just being able to teach. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so I'm, I'm ranting here, but like it, really means a lot. And, uh, I think a lot of you guys probably come from there, uh, to this podcast. So, uh, thank you on behalf of Carlton Connor too. I believe they'd probably agree. Uh, thanks for just being curious and wanting to listen to more about the, you know, history and prehistory through archeology. span Yeah, absolutely, man. And I, I want to say, and I, I bet Carlton will agree with us. Um, we're super proud of you, man. I mean, you work hard to maintain this channel, to maintain these posts and it's, it's a lot of work and a lot of people don't see this behind the scenes how much work you you put into that so you've definitely earned it man coming from me yeah absolutely and and yeah i agree and like for our listeners like david puts in his fucking research and he often asks other people to make sure he's saying what is correct is what he's saying on there is correct so you know this isn't just him sitting alone in his bedroom like thinking (laughs) of this stuff like he's actually putting the research into these posts and he's oftentimes less me and connor you know just word choices and just basic, basic grammatical shit. Um, and then make sure things are culture. Yeah. I spelled popes instead of tying the poles on the trivia. You tie the popes to the dog's back. I missed that. (laughs) Put that on blast for about two hours. First sentence. That might hurt our Vatican. Thanks guys. I, I, I really appreciate it, especially hearing it from you guys. It's like, means a lot. It's weird not being in academia and just like having an actual job. Um, there's like that weird pressure of like not being a success, uh, in like some ways, but then like, cause like your, your, your initial thing, success is like being a PhD, being Ross Geller on friends, you know, like, <laughs> but he wasn't successful in any way, but, um, doing this is what I wanted to do, what I would do with a PhD anyway. And instead of just talking to a classroom of 30 undergrads, I'm talking to officially 10,000.7 people on uh, a Facebook owned company. So yay. Oh yeah, man. Solid. Yeah. Now, anyway. now time to get the life and ruins pod to 10,000. Yeah. That's next. Got to quit that job. That's yeah. next. You, made, you did the 10, seven. <laughs> yeah, just now that you hit 10,000. Yeah. Now, yeah, now you just got to stop. 
do you guys have, speaking of podcast, do you guys have anything to say about, you know, the new year? And like, I, I think this is our first new year's podcast. So like what, maybe second, either way. It's uh, January. Second, but I guess I just, so yesterday I turned in my last final for my third semester of a peeing in a PhD program at an R1 institution, which is great. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Like, it's like I'm actually got to sleep in today. I'm usually in my office by like six o'clock in the morning most days, to be honest. Really? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm up at five most days. And I'm like, I, have, I get everything packed the night before and I'm in my office at six. So that way I have time to like get shit done I need to before emails start coming in around nine o'clock. That's impressive, man. So, yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, I don't know. I think my mental health is like a year ago today I was not in a good place and as like you guys know like even before I went to Ukraine I was still struggling a lot and like I think I kind yeah. of had a realization the other day that I'm I'm doing much better like I realize it that like I'm pretty fucking phenomenal and and many of awesome, things man. so yeah, I, do. Yeah, I don't know so yeah. I know 2020 going forward we get we get this got this continuing Still, I'm starting to get emails actually about the Ukraine trip that I mentioned back in episode yeah. six. People are actually starting to hit me up about it. Um, that student at Radford that listens to us actually Instagram messaged me this morning asking, oh, and I was like, "You need a field school," um, and then we'll we'll talk. And he's looking into. I told him to start looking into travel grants just in case we don't get the grant we're looking for to fund us to go, but. I don't know. That's cool. People know us. Um, I know at the Nebraska State Archaeological Society or whatever, they know of our podcast and they talk about it. And I don't know. I think it's just a confluence of things at the end of this year. That's yeah, been a, great. It's awesome. It's, I've really enjoyed, you know, my personal take on this. Like, I've really enjoyed this podcast. It gives me, you know, as a CRM archaeologist, you kind of fade away from academia periodically. And this gives me that that foot in this academic world and gets me excited about archaeology again because it's hard to stay excited sometimes when you're when you're making maps ad nauseum for months on end. So and I you know I was in the same way as Carlton. I've, yeah. I've gone through some up and down emotional well-being and he's you guys have really helped me through that and I I super appreciate you guys. I super appreciate listeners for rating us, reviewing us, talking to us, engaging with us. You guys you guys made this 2019 just fantastic honestly yeah. yeah connor's getting married this year he uh, is a life and ruins wedding, wedding. <laughs> live stream <it. laughs> um I, I, one one last thing for anyone who like is still here caleb uh stefan i think you're on there um oh, hey stefan you're awesome man we really appreciate what you're doing and we're really excited to have you on here soon Hey, oh, go eat your spinach. So, <laughs> go eat spinach. <laughs> Guys, Stefan in his YouTube videos, it's like his thing. He puts a little lav mic on a, a plastic spoon. It's frankly, it's adorable and I love it, but it's the funniest thing every time it's on there. Well, I didn't start doing that. But anyway. Well, his uh, name, well, our listeners don't know who it is. His name's Stefan Milo. We haven't had him on the podcast yet. He will be. He produces some great content and we've, and he's most of the people we know on social media are because of David and ethnosynology. So actually, like a lot of. <laughs> The guests we've had, like that we don't know personally, it's 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 David. Just the the fixer. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, Chris is the fixer. I'm just the uh, the networking New York person. <laughs> uh, I don't know what the polite word for that is, but the um, 
For for, the, for those of you who listen to the podcast, we really appreciate it. Uh, we get DMs all the time from you guys. We like on my, uh, the podcast Instagram and our Instagram, and we just got put on a list of uh, Carlton. What was it? The top 10? Uh, top ten of in, science podcasts. Yeah, you, yeah, yeah. You, yeah, it's like oh, you right, don't listen to, and then it's like parentheses yet. So we got put on that list as number nine, and we are also like, I love the. Can I read the description? Yeah, sure. Yeah, hold on. Let me let me pull it up. So you say what you need to say. I'm going to pull this up. Oh, I, I was going to say uh, with what Bernie was talking about earlier today, the hero's journey thing with Joseph Campbell. Super interesting topic. I, I really I'm glad he brought that up. Um, a lot of like mythologies in the world, like Luke Skywalker or, um, you know, he was mentioning Gilgamesh. They have all these like common themes. And if you don't know that, if you read Joseph Campbell's work, like you'll see that theme in a lot of like at least Western literature and uh, Eastern literature as well. Super dope. Not relevant to anything we we're saying. What's up, Stefan? <laughs> we love you, Caleb. Uh, why I brought that up is I'm about to go see Star Wars, uh, The Rise of Skywalker on uh, the 20th. And here's here's the thing, guys, uh, just because we're podcasting. Anybody who doesn't like the new Star Wars movies, like shoot me a DM. Let's talk it out, man. It's still it's still Star Wars. You're still Disney's still making money off you, whether you hate it or love it. You're still writing Disney on the internet. I'm just ranting here, Carlton. You almost done. I love the new I, Star Wars. Okay, what else okay, can I, I say? All right, good. I'm done talking. I got it. So, <laughs> so it's it's ten science podcasts you haven't heard of parentheses yet exclamation point by Stephanie uh, Fukio, I think. Anyways, so there's ten of these on here. Our podcast art is in the center of this post. I fucking love it. We are ranked as number nine, a Life in Ruins podcast. And this is what the description reads. We have spent quite a bit of time above ground so far in this list. So let's go underground with the help of this archaeological trio. Former classmates from the University of Wyoming, Carlton Gober, voila, Connor Johnen, and David Howe dig into this topic with vigor and humor. In fact, this science podcast almost deserves a comedy category. It's that funny. They are all clearly confident, intelligent, and very good friends, as their archaeological jargon and friendly but teasing banter suggests. And yet we can easily learn heaps about the field through their, and they say, ridiculous stories. A perfect starting episode is episode <laughs> six, Eat, Dig, Love, A Summer of the Ukraine. It will ruin you. The funniest- Out of all the episodes, yeah. it's like that one where I'm screaming about jewel pods and arguing with Connor about duck effigies. Yeah. Like that's what she's telling people to go listen to. That is by far my least favorite one because I am just sleep deprived. I am angry. Like I'm just, I'm, oh God. So yeah. And she found us through, we had to make a Twitter recently. It's at yeah, that's, what, Life that's, and Ruins Pod. <laughs> yeah, it's at a Life and Ruins Pod, and we only did it for Doctor Anderson, who is episode eleven, because um, he's got this crazy it. following, and we were like, share, so, do we tweet us? Didn't so we'll do that. And he, and he really, he just retweeted us. He didn't make a post. Thanks, Doctor <laughs> Anderson. And so we made it for that, but it just happened to coincide with with this with this author looking up things, and she saw the retweet from Doctor Anderson, and like went out of her way to listen. Didn't even listen to his episode. Listen to fucking eat, pray, dig Ukraine. <laughs> My mom listened episodes? to that one. Mom, I know you're listening right now. Sorry, I'm throwing you right under the bus directly under the, the big yellow school bus. But she's like, you guys curse too much in that one. And I'm like, well, we curse. She said like, we curse too much and we're unprofessional, which I mean, we are. That's that's like our thing. But mom, I made a list. <laughs> and not that kind of list. I made this list. <laughs> 
and I love how like because like the episode that recorded directly before this, so episode thirteen, the real episode thirteen, we recorded just before this episode because we're going out for break. So we've done like three hours of fucking podcasting today. And uh, even Chris, he doesn't cuss on any of his podcasts, but because he, we have that explicit label, <laughs> I noticed like he was cussing he a lot. I was like, yes, just, just like, he can't do this on his own oh, shows. All right. Well, what's... <laughs> Bernie didn't oh, curse God. though. Bernie was an adult and he... No, Bernie yeah. was great. I, that was a great interview. Guy. Yeah, yeah. very and, intelligent. And, like, for, for our listeners, we kind of almost thought we weren't going to interview him. We had a we had like a brief email dialogue to like make sure like we knew what we were talking about because you know Bernie has some interesting ideas that don't as I think as our listeners know you wouldn't expect us to have him on, but he reached out to us yeah and we didn't want to silence him we were like let's let's talk about it like we've actually put a lot of research into his episodes like David with the dog stuff we were looking up caves like we were looking up all this other stuff because we're like we need to have a conversation with him where we can actually like talk with him and like you know. Yeah, just to, to make sure that we knew what he was talking about and that we could offer other ideas or, you know, just engage with him. So we put a lot of time into those first two segments. Yeah. Yeah, yeah thanks for on, Bernie. All right. This is yeah, the dude, end of episode 14, finally, um, right? I, we there? We there? Catorce. Catorce. I don't know why I said that. Anyway. Catorce. Shorts? Is that what that means? Nope. Matt's means 14. <laughs> oh, right. What is shorts? <laughs> uh, pantalones cortos. Yeah, pantalones. I was thinking of the cortos part. He doesn't say cortos, but yeah. Um, uh, soy stupido. Okay, boys. It's el fin de la. It's, I'm done. It's the end of this episode. I don't think any of us. Atore, Atore, Atore. You listen to this one. Uh, you don't speak Spanish, though, so never mind. So it would not would not work. Um, Dude, he speaks Japanese. No. <laughs> oh yeah, so Car- Car- <laughs> fun fact. Oh, here's our last uh, little tidbit for the, the the end of the year episode. Chris, I'm sorry, we're so over on this one. Uh, I'm so sorry. Ator- Connor thought, or Carlton thought that when I said Atore, or Atore, he thought I was saying Hatori, as in Hatori Hanzo from Kill Bill, and I did not know that Atore, who lives in Italy. Uh, Northern Italy listens to our podcast. He speaks very good English, uh, actually better than I do. And in the email, sig- he's he's actually making our new podcast art, which is amazing, by the way. And in the email good. signature of his, <laughs> he said greetings from Japan. And I was at work and died because that means not only is he funny as hell, he listened to the whole podcast and heard us just butcher his name and nationality. <laughs> and then I, he heard me say eat the spaghetti. Yeah, see, not a good. Look, man, we we can't do that. <laughs> anyway, oh my god! Yeah. Um, so, thank any, you, Bernie. Thank news? you, everyone. Yeah. Connor, yeah. thank you. Thank I thank you, thank you both for being on here. Yeah, yeah, man. Thank you and everything Carlson. that we do. Yeah, this is great. When do we? We don't record. <laughs> fuck you. Yeah, fuck you, Carlson. Uh, well, yeah. When do we record again? Sorry, we don't Mom. record again until like January. Oh, I'm off the hook, dude. So, I'm watching Star Wars like eight times. I know, I know, dude. I'm I'm watching it with uh with my my person. She's never seen Star Wars, so I got fucking like what ten, probably like sixteen hours worth of Star Wars to watch with her before we see that. Do the machete order if she's never seen it. <sighs> yeah, I know. That's what I was planning on. To be like, how does this speaking rogue of, have they speaking have of the they added journey. rogue rogue and uh, rogue the whatever Star Wars yeah. rogue one and rogue one. Uh, and a solo have and they added solo. those yet? 
On Disney Plus? They're on Netflix, both of those. No, I know that, but in terms of like the order that you're supposed to watch Star Wars. Oh, yeah. So, Machete Order, if you do it this way, it's the the order for getting the, the correct rise and fall of Anakin, which is like the, you know, the saga. Uh, you watch A New Hope, then you watch The Empire Strikes Back, and you find out that he's the father, or Vader is. And then you go back and watch episode two and three. You negate one, because <laughs> why? And then you watch, right there, you can watch Rogue One, and then you can watch Solo. And then you watch Return of the Jedi. But the actual order is four, five, two, three, and then six. Six takes the whole hero's journey of Luke Skywalker and Anakin Skywalker, and it comes to a, a poetic end. Uh, but I guess not because now the, the Emperor is back a lot. I interrupted. Sorry. I love Star Wars. We are actually over our third segment now. Carlton, fin- I'm done. Finish it off. <laughs> Sweet. So, uh, God. We are, well, we asked Bernie if you'd, I don't think he got the joke, but I think he answered well. He likes Costco. I like Costco. Um, I love Costco. 14. Yeah, I guess that's, wow. Yep, that's episode 14. Jesus. It feels like we've been doing this a lot longer, but we started recording back in, in March is when we first recorded. Yeah. April, no, we recorded in April, right? Yeah, we had it recorded in April. The podcast didn't come out until May because I was, I had a, no, dude. Quiet. Because I remember Quiet. I had to write, I was writing my comps. Quiet. Yeah. I'm yeah. Kidding. I'm just kidding. Okay. I'm putting three minutes in the uh, the end there. No, I think, I think we're over. I've talked enough. Connor, take us out. Peace. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. So this time, instead of a shitty Connor joke, we're going to get some funny podcast writing from uh, Robbie Slowick at Robbie Slowick. R-O-B-B-Y-S-L-O-W-I-K on Twitter. He writes, I'm going to read some of his latest podcast-themed erotica. I slowly remove your blue apron. (laughs) I see you're not wearing any MeUndies. And I reach for your square space. Oh my god. None of those people. <laughs> oh my Jesus. god! Thank you, thank you, thank you for that, Connor. All right, everybody, we're thanks. We're out. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.